Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. We are in the book of Numbers, and um, in this series, today we are at a very key text. Um, I, I always would want, if I was giving a lecture, I'd say this is the center of the book, and uh, that, that's almost true, but a central event takes place right now, and um, not a lot of folks notice, and so um, we'll break chapter 20 in, into two parts, but I'm very excited because um, I'm also going to show you um, some uh, Jewish traditions that, uh, as evangelical readers of scripture, that we often miss out on, and I think some of the Jewish uh, rabbinic writings, the Talmud, the Mishnah, Midrash, whatnot, um, can open up parts of the story for us. And so we're reading in Numbers chapter 20 today. Last week, um, Aaron's staff blossomed and produced fruit. Uh, and this week, it will not be a staff, but a, a stone um, that does something supernatural. And I think it has something to do with Miriam. So you may not be able to read this unless you have supernatural vision, which Kara prayed for, so perhaps. <clears throat> the first 13 verses of Numbers chapter 20 goes like this. The Israelites, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried. I'm not sure if you recall the last time we spoke about Miriam in this church and in this series uh, was when she was confronting Moses boldly and being uh, struck with a skin disease and cast out of camp for seven days. And she's not spoken since in the narrative. And here the chapter begins, Miriam is dead. Now there, <laughs> now it depends how I uh, enunciate the next verse where we see the connection. So it says, um, Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had died when our kindred died before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff. Assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron. Go, command the rock, speak to the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Thus you shall provide drink for the congregation and for their livestock. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the people together before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff, and water came gushing forth. The congregation and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to show my holiness before the eyes of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and by which 
he showed his holiness. So Miriam's dead. There's no more water. God tells Moses to speak to the rock and demand that it yield its water. And, and Moses and Aaron went and kind of shouted angrily at the congregation, it seems, um, called them rebels, and then he hit the rock twice with his staff. And truly, the water did gush out exactly as um, God said it would. But then something happens. It's very confusing. God is upset at Aaron and, and Moses because I guess the way they did it was somehow incorrect. And so now Miriam's, Miriam's dead, and Moses has now just been told for the first time that he too will die in the wilderness, that he will not walk with the people across the Jordan River into the land flowing with milk and honey. This is a central moment in the whole Pentateuch. Moses is told he will not enter the land of promise. But first, let's talk for a quick moment about Miriam. It's rather sudden, wouldn't you say? Miriam is dead and the congregation moves on. So, Miriam plays a very important role in the life of Moses and the life of our story. Um, you can go to the next slide, Jolene, thank you. Um, we first met Miriam at the beginning of the book of Exodus when she's Moses' older sister. Um, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has announced that the, 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 the Hebrew people are too numerous, and so he wants to do something about the population growth, and he wants to um, murder all of the baby boys by throwing them into the water of the Nile River. But Miriam um, helps her mother, Yocheved, save Moses. Um, it's actually a series of uh, different women who would have very little value in society and very little agency who end up kind of saving Moses and bringing down the Egyptian empire. <laughs> um, so Miriam helps uh, Yocheved, Moses' mother, um, build this little, little boat out of a basket and cover it with tar and pitch. And they put little baby Moses into the, the basket, into the water of the Nile River, um, hoping and praying that the baby lives and ultimately hoping and praying that um, a mother <laughs> would find this baby, or, or, or somehow, I suppose they didn't have an imagination for exactly what would happen, but it's a very beautiful story. I heard a sermon a couple years ago by a woman who um, um, has adopted a few children, and she said this is the first adoption story in the text. A mother knows that she cannot keep her child safe. She cannot give her child the life her child deserves, and in an act of utter faith, puts the child in the basket, um, giving it with great hope um, to a life that she she prays exists and sure enough um, the pharaoh's daughter a princess um, discovers the little baby and has compassion on the baby and adopts the baby but miriam is there uh, miriam it seems to be that she kind of waits in the reeds watching the basket to see what will come of her little brother and so when the, the egyptian princess um, finds the baby and kind of picks up the baby like has compassion on this little baby um, Little Miriam shows up and says, would you like me to find a, 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 a lactating Hebrew woman who could breastfeed this baby for you? And the Pharaoh's prince, the daughter is like, that's an excellent idea, because like, she can't nurse the baby. I know just the woman, and goes and gets Moses' own mother. Like, come on. And then the princess never learns that it's Moses' mother or Moses' sister, but um, she adopts Moses to, to be raised in her house, and, and Yocheved, Moses' mom, gets to be a part of that. His, his early childhood and continue to nurse and care for her baby. And so Miriam is um, praised greatly for arranging this um, place of belonging for Moses and his mother uh, and the Pharaoh's daughter. The next time we see Miriam um, in the story, um, she's leading people through the Red Sea um, on dry land with her tambourine, and she's singing prophetically, um, leading Israel in like a, a song. And the song only has a few lyrics. It just simply says, um, he has thrown horse and rider into the sea. 
Um, but the image that we see in Exodus 15 is that she's leading prophetically um, and musically um, the people triumphantly through the sea. With her brother Moses now grown, um, she's grown, and like what a beautiful transformative, you can just picture it, I'm sure. Um, and so she's leading them through the sea, playing her songs. And then finally, as um, Dallas preached about a few weeks ago, she appears again confronting Moses for doing something that he probably shouldn't have done. And uh, as a result, she's stricken with a skin disease and cast out of the community for seven days, but we're told that she's very well loved by her community and the community refuses to move forward without her. And now, she's dead. In the wilderness, our Miriam. There's a rabbinic tradition that goes back many, many hundreds of years that it's actually because of Miriam's presence um, that there's been this rock that has been gushing water out for the people, that this stone has essentially followed them around the wilderness. They're, they're at the end of the 40 years here. Um, I'm not sure if you've been reading numbers on your own, but we're a few months away from you know, the book of Joshua and, and crossing over into the Red Sea. Um, they've lived a whole lifetime, 40 years. <laughs> I shouldn't say a whole lifetime, just because I'm under 40. I know for those who are 40 are like, excuse me, what? I got like a third of a lifetime, thank you very much, right? Not a lifetime. They've lived 40 years in this wilderness. And the tradition has been that Miriam, the, the prophetess Miriam, is the one um, in her presence is, is, is associated with this um, kind of supernatural water. So she kind of protects Moses in the waters, um, and then she's there guiding the people through the dry land in the waters. And uh, here when she dies the water dries up. And the people know it was because of Miriam, they had water, and now the water's dried up. And so it's quite beautiful. In the Talmud, um, the tradition is that Miriam is associated with the water, Aaron is associated with the pillar of cloud that guides them, and Moses with the manna uh, that appears every morning. Um, in Jewish writing, um, uh, the Zohar, uh, Miriam is again um, affiliated with water. And in, in there, you'll find a story about how, because Miriam died, the, the rock dried up. And there's actually um, a story in Jewish Midrash that Miriam praising God through the Red Sea, um, the water followed her. And wherever Miriam was, um, there's, there's water that flows. And it's not too um, far-fetched, perhaps, because even in our own text, in Exodus 15, um, when Moses sings the song, uh, sorry, when Miriam sings the song, so we're in Exodus 15, verse 20 to 21, um, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. And the very next verse in Exodus 15, there's no water. It's a problem. Um, there, there's a body of water, but they can't drink it. It's too bitter. The people cry out, and uh, Moses puts something into the water, and then the water's made good enough to drink. Um, and so this kind of Miriam song, and then water, and that's the first time we're told the water is called uh, Meribah or Merah. And then the story takes place again, I won't read it, but in Exodus 17, there's no water, the people cry out and hear, um, and so this is 40 years earlier, we're in Exodus 17, um, there's a rock, God tells Moses to go strike the rock, and uh, the rock gushes forth with water in Exodus 17, and that place is called um, Meribah. So the confusing piece is that 40 years ago, in a whole different part of the wilderness, there's this kind of rock that gushes forth with water, and Moses names the place Meribah. And here, in Numbers 20, the place is again called Meribah, but we know they're in a different place. Um, so the, this kind of Jewish tradition is that Miriam's rock is called Meribah, and Miriam's rock followed them everywhere. So you can show it on the next slide. Um, and of course, it sounds 
truly absurd that there would be a big rock that just followed the people around. And in case you haven't noticed, the book of Numbers is the place for absurdity. Um, so of course, and I'll show you in a second that um, Paul believed this too. Possibly so does Jesus. Jesus believes rocks can sing. Why can't Moses believe rocks can follow us around and gush forth with water? It's perfectly reasonable. Women are associated with water all throughout the Old Testament. Um, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is discovered at a well. Rachel, uh, Jacob's wife, is found at a well. Moses' own wife, Zipporah, is found at a well. Water, uh, wells, and women go together in the biblical story. There's, in fact, an ancient Jewish custom that is still held by many um, Jewish believers to this day that every, um, at evening on Sabbath, so the evening after Sabbath, so that would be Saturday night as the sun has gone down, um, there's this ancient um, Jewish belief that all water in every spring comes from Miriam's well in that time on Saturday night. Uh, and so there's like all these kind of legends and stories about making sure you drink from a well or from a spring on the evening of Sabbath and you'll taste the water of Meribah from Miriam's well. And so when you imagine that perhaps the well, the rock dried up or the water dried up because Miriam is now dead, it makes sense. Um, the people cry out, we have no more water now. And so Moses and Aaron, who should be grieving the death of their sister, the community should be grieving the death of their prophetess, um, instead are distressed that this means no more water. And so they cry out, if Miriam's dead, you know, we're good as dead as well. And so when I imagine, um, although Moses and Aaron were told by God to speak to the rock, instead, and it's perhaps out of grief, perhaps it's out of anger, um, despair, we're not sure, but instead of speaking to the rock, Moses lifts his staff and strikes it twice um, and calls the people rebels. And I can imagine a brother maybe in this state of complete kind of agony because his sister is dead. Like, what's wrong with you people? Can't we take a moment to grieve? Instead, you're complaining again. And he smashes the rock twice and water gushes forth. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Um, oh, there was another image of a woman at a well to kind of capture your imagination of all the women at the well stories in the Bible. But um, we don't know. The author doesn't make it very clear. What did Moses do wrong? Striking the rock twice. I mean, that's what he had to do in Exodus 17. He did exactly what he did then. This is how the rock has gushed forth water before. What did Moses really do wrong? And there's lots of different theories. Of course, maybe he wasn't supposed to hit the rock. He was just supposed to speak to it. Um, he wasn't supposed to say, should I bring forth water? He should have said, it is from the Lord that this water comes. Like, we don't know. There's different theories. Um, but one thing we do know, and I think this is very cool, and this ties all of Numbers 20 together, is that... Uh, this phrase that's in Numbers 20, uh, verse 12. Um, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me um, to show my holiness before the eyes of Israel, therefore you will not enter the land I have given you. It seems that phrase appears somewhere else in the Bible exactly the same word for word, and it's back actually in the book of Genesis, and it has to do with Abraham. And it seems that the whole book of Numbers, the whole time we read this narrative, we're supposed to, of course, because we're all like devout Old Testament readers, be comparing Moses to Abraham. Their lives have been extremely different. Abraham did not witness supernatural signs and wonders. Um, Moses did. And yet the story about Abraham that seems to be connected here um, is in Genesis 15. Um, you can go to the next slide and then the one following. Forgot about that one. 
In Genesis 15, early in the story, God takes Abraham outside to look at the sky. And it says in Genesis 15, verse 5, Look towards the sky and count the stars if you are able. And then God said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. And that's unbelievable because he's an old man and his wife is an old woman and they don't have children. And God is saying something ridiculous. Your children will be numerous like the stars. But the text says, And so Abraham believed and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham's a man who has no reason to believe. He's constantly faced with famine. He's constantly faced with like war and conflict and landlessness, um, extreme poverty. Their con their la the only piece of land Abraham ever owns in his whole life is a tiny plot to bury Sarah when she dies. Otherwise, he's vulnerable. Um, he, he witnesses hardly any of the miraculous. Um, the only, the kind of closest glimpse he gets of the miraculous is Sarah becoming pregnant with Isaac and then, of course, not long into Isaac's life, God is telling him to take Isaac up on a mountain and kill him. But Abraham believes. He does. He takes little Isaac up the mountain and is fully prepared to kill Isaac. God stops him, thankfully, saying, now I know that you believe. And so here is Moses. Moses has lived the opposite life of Abraham. He has seen signs and wonders. He's seen miraculous food, miraculous water. He's seen it all. And yet in this moment when God says, I want you to go and speak to the rock, something Moses does reveals to God that he has not believed. He has not believed. He has acted in anger um, and, and disbelief. Abraham knows the wilderness perhaps even better than Moses. In fact, Abraham's name in scripture is the wandering Aramean. And so interestingly, if we're supposed to hold the story in our mind, Abraham believed. Um, he almost killed his son uh, out of this belief. Then what actually happens in the second half of the book of Numbers, I mean, sorry, of Numbers chapter 20, might blow your mind. So you can go to the next picture. That was my little image of the potential um, slaying of Isaac. But then, did you know, and most people don't keep reading in Numbers 20, but Aaron dies at the end of Numbers 20 as well. Both siblings Older brother and older sister are dead by the end of Numbers 20. And here's the story. And I wonder if you can see the connection. The second half of Numbers 20 says, They set out from Kadesh, and the Israelites, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, On the border of the land of Adam, let Aaron now be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land that I have given to the Israelites, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eliezer. Now, if you know Genesis really well, you know that that's the child that Abraham has, that uh, Abraham's afraid will inherit all of his stuff, a, a, a servant he has. Anyway, okay, forget that out of your mind. You did not make that connection. That's for me to find cool. Never mind. Take Aaron and his son Eliezer, bring them up to the mountain. Strip Aaron of his vestments and put them on his son Eliezer. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and he will die there. So we've just had a reference to Abraham. You did not believe. Abraham did. Well, what did God do to test Abraham's belief? Told him to go up on a mountain and kill someone he loved very much. And here in Numbers 20, you have not believed. Here's what I want you to do. Take your brother Aaron up in the mountain. It's very subtle, but it seems there could potentially be a, a connection. So Moses takes him up a mountain, strips Aaron of his clothing, puts the clothing on Aaron's son, Eliezer, and the author simply says, and so Aaron died on top of the mountain. And Moses 
and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And there's all sorts of um, linguistic connections between this story and Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. And then the last verse of Numbers 20 says, when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. Miriam is dead. There's no water. God tells Moses, it's okay, there's still water. Speak to the rock, it's okay. He, s he gets angry, smashes the rock twice, and then God calls Moses to bring Aaron up on the mountain and leave Aaron's body there. Miriam, very much in this story, um, is a Christ character. Um, rejected. Um, she, she experiences kind of being forsaken or abandoned by God back when she has the skin disease. Um, she has been a savior, a rescuer, a liberator, a prophet, um, and, and she has died in the wilderness. Moses also, um, now rejected by God as well, Moses is a Christ character. He has come in, in this story as a savior, as a liberator, as someone who suffers greatly and who is ultimately rejected by God. And now here, Aaron. Whether he just simply died up on that mountain because he was very old, or maybe he died of heartbreak because his sister was dead, um, or maybe some sacrificial thing took place between him and Moses, the narrator seems to be intentionally ambiguous to invite us to imagine and speculate and dialogue together about it. But Aaron is dead. Aaron, too, plays a Christ character in this story, rejected. Um, he suffers greatly. He does very much. Um, he plays a huge role in the story, um, but is hardly uh, celebrated or praised for, for his goodness, very much a Christ character. These are suffering servants. Because what we know so far is that the wilderness is a place of great suffering. Also, a place of great wonder. There's astonishing life in the wilderness, and there is astonishing death. The people eat the dew of the dawn. They drink from stones. They weep. They dance their way on dry land through the Red Sea. They see with their own eyes that God is with them. And yet God is with them, not only in the miraculous life, but in the tragedy of death. In Deuteronomy 32, skipping ahead a few months in the story, Moses now is on his deathbed. In, in Moses' um, deathbed speech, he reminds the people, let me read to you this poem, and I want you to look for the theme of the rock, perhaps the rock of Miriam. Here we have his final um, poem. I'll just read a part of it in Deuteronomy 32. Moses says, He sustained him in a desert land, in a howling wilderness waste. He shielded him, him being the, the son of God, which is the nation of Israel, he shielded him, cared for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings and takes them up and bears them aloft on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He set him atop the heights of the land and fed him with the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey from the rocks, with oil from the flinty stone. And again in verse 18 it says, But you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the rock who gave you birth. Moses sees God as the rock that guided us through the wilderness, the rock that followed us, the rock that fed us. And before you're thinking like, okay, this is absurd, obviously the rock isn't specially connected to Miriam, or obviously there isn't a stone that followed them around. However, bear with me, 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul has obviously been very familiar with all of these um, Jewish uh, rabbinical writings and, and, and Jewish traditions. Because in 1 Corinthians 10, this is what Paul says. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, siblings, that our ancestors were all under the cloud that passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. I love that Paul associates the coming through the Red Sea as a baptism. They were baptized into Moses in cloud and sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them around. It's in 1 Corinthians 10. And that rock was Christ. Is Paul's words. He's obviously heard this story and knows that the rock followed them around and in his understanding, the rock is Christ. And so we imagine, um, can you imagine God being so present with them in the wilderness that um, um, God, um, in the form of Christ, um, is this rock that follows them and waters them and nourishes them. Suddenly, um, some of Jesus' encounters and teachings around water come to life. Um, don't forget, in John chapter 4, Jesus meets his own woman at the well, performing the script, uh, Rebecca and Zipporah and Rachel, and yet Jesus' story with the woman in the well in John 4, Jesus goes to her and says what all of the men um, with Rebecca, Rachel, and Zipporah uh, say, and Jesus says, give me a drink. And the woman says, why would you ask me for a drink? Samaritans and Jews don't associate with each other. And then Jesus says to her these words, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of uh, this water I offer will never go thirsty again. The water that I give will become in them a spring gushing into eternal life. So Jesus says <laughs> to this woman, I know about water and wells. I know this woman, the Samaritan woman, no doubt knows what it is to be in the wilderness, to be rejected and forsaken. And Jesus offers her the same thing he offered the people for all 40 years in the wilderness, to deep, drink deep um, of the water that he offers. And so the wilderness is a place of great suffering, but also a place of wonder. The wilderness is a place of astonishing life and astonishing death. But in the wilderness, we eat the dawn. We drink from stones. Moses says we drink honey from stones. We weep. We dance. We see with our own eyes that God is with us. We don't eat and drink because of the work of our own hands, because of our status, because of our identity. The wilderness is not a meritocracy. All who are thirsty are invited to come and drink. All who are hungry are invited to come and eat without money. We drink water that flows from the side of Christ. We drink wine made from water, from the table prepared for us in the valley of the shadow of death. And so there's something in this story, in conclusion, in Numbers 20, that invites us to consider the ways that God is present even when we don't notice, that God has carried us through the wilderness places without us even seeing that he's there. Could there be a stone that follows you, a hand that has protected you, a God who has been present here all along offering us drink, um, even when we're not looking out for God, when we're not paying attention, we're not, you know, reading our Bibles or we're not showing up and praying, we're not even sure we believe a lot of what we used to believe, and yet the rock is still there and the water still flows 
and it's not because you did anything to deserve it. In life and in death, Jesus says, come. Come.